Welcome to episode 113 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? Dude, I've been on vacation this week, and I'm coming to you live, well, sort of live, from (laughs) my mom's house, where we've been doing a bunch of uh, repairs and just giving her place a little TLC. It's been nice to kind of be offline. Let me tell you, you know how to vacation, Leslie. Some people would go to Cabo or on a safari, but you're you're being a good daughter, and that is, let's be real, better. I mean, my mom's 76 years old, and um, I got an electric sander uh, from my buddy that uh, is teaching me how to do a lot of this, uh, the window repairs and everything else. It's pretty exciting. And also, probably the gayest thing I'll say today. So there's that. That sounds like a <laughs> that sounds like a challenge to me, but I've seen the picture of you very excited about your electric sander, so we'll see. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, enough about me. Let's let's start off the show and get into headlines. What do you say? Up first, Stephen Yun and Ali Wong will star and executive produce Netflix's road rage dramedy Beef. In renewals, Apple has picked up British comedy Trying for a third season. FX has renewed Snowfall for a fifth season. Mr. Mayor will return for a second term on NBC. And CBS has picked up FBI and FBI Most Wanted while ordering a third show in the Dick Wolf franchise. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. On the casting front, Naomi Harris will star in The Man Who Fell to Earth for Showtime. Yelan Noel of Insecure will star in The Spook Who Sat by the Door for FX and Lee Daniels. Jane Lynch will star in just about everything, but in this particular case, ABC's comedy pilot Bucktown. And Wallace Day will take over the role of Kate Kane in The CW's Batwoman. On the overall deal front, Grey's Anatomy, Station 19, and Rebel Boss Krista Vernoff has renewed her pact with ABC Signature. Tracy Oliver has closed an eight-figure overall deal with Apple. Jamie Foxx has set a production pact with Viacom CBS for television. And Issa Rae has inked a new five-year deal with Warner Media. And on the flip side, All Rise creator and co-showrunner Greg Spottiswood has been fired by Warner Brothers after a second misconduct investigation and subsequently been dropped by his agency, APA. And finally, in news that broke basically five minutes after the podcast locked last week, but we'll at least mention here, HBO is developing not one, not two, but three more Game of Thrones spinoffs. Good times. Good times, Dan. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, the industry has lost two huge talents this week. Just in, as where we're sitting down to record, Jessica Walter, the beloved Arrested Development and Archer leading lady, has passed away at the age of 80. Walter's passing comes eight days after a former co-star of hers, George Siegel, who spent the past eight seasons playing Pops on the Goldbergs, also passed away at the age of 87. Two huge comedic talents here, Dan. Gone too soon. Absolutely. Uh, but also two huge comedic talents who have multiple decades of of work and multiple decades of work, interestingly, together, uh, which you know, has added poignance to to today because you've been seeing all of these pictures of young Jessica Walter and young George Siegel from uh, from Bye Bye Braverman, a film that Sidney Lumet directed, uh, or from two different sitcoms they did together. They did Retired at 35, and then on Just Shoot Me, uh, Jessica Walter played the ex-wife of George Siegel's character. And so it's there's there's a lot of of sadness about that because these are two completely beloved figures who have gone through every single stage of a career that a Hollywood star could go through. You you go back to Jessica Walter in Play Misty for Me or Grand Prix when she was a bombshell leading lady and a, and a dramatic powerhouse. And then she was a, a standby of every sort of TV project and TV movie in the 70s and 80s. I mean, basically, you go and you look at the procedural. She probably appeared on it in a starring role at some point, guest starring role, rather, at some point. And then, of course, the the late life third or fourth act that she had as Lucille Bluth 
in uh in arrested development which is is truly one of the great comic performances and and i'm not sure i will ever understand how she didn't win an emmy for that performance because it is such a great performance of just just it's a showcase for uh for comic timing in a way that you could just show it to anyone and it would be an example of how to do every kind of brilliant line reading. I mean, sometimes she's she's daffy, sometimes she's cutting, sometimes she's playing to the undercurrents of whatever the subtext and the scripts are. Just a brilliant comic performance. And then she also had a, a whole generation of fans for her work as Mallory Archer on Archer, where, again, even without actually appearing on screen, comic timing for for days, she also was uh, Granny Goodness on Harley Quinn. She was just as good as it gets when it comes to voiceover. She was spectacular. And and George Siegel, you go back to when he was a, a young actor and performances in movies like King Rat and uh, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. This, this was a plot line a couple weeks ago on the Goldbergs where – Everyone had to stop for an entire episode to see pictures of George Siegel as a young hunk. And that was a plot line where everyone was like, oh, my God, Pops used to be a stud. But that was the kind of thing that they did on the Goldbergs in the last couple of years where they kept having these plot lines where basically the entire point was, here's a guy who maybe you don't realize properly enough how tremendous he is and how beloved he is. And we want to make sure that the family within the show realizes it and the people watching at home realize it. Yeah, just just two absolutely beloved talents over five decades of work apiece. Yeah, and, you know, I while I never covered Arrested Development, I did cover the Goldbergs, no relation, I should note. And I've gotten to go to set a few times uh, for various stories, including one where I got a makeover, an 80s-style makeover. And, you know, George was amazing. And, um, I, you know, every every time I sat down with him, we'd do the interview, and then he would ask me questions about myself, you know, not just my career and what the story is for and what I'm writing, but how I got here. And he got he took the time to get to know me and, you know, we would just chat about different stuff and, you know, it really did feel like I was sitting down and talking to my own grandfather who, you know, for me growing up, my grandfather on my mom's side was my favorite person as a kid. He's the reason that I love baseball. And so when I say that talking to George made me feel like I was talking to my grandfather, it is, it's big. And I'm struggling for words here because it, he was just the, the sweetest guy and the nicest man and the most talented and so friendly and, you know, the couple times on set, I would observe a scene and one of the young uh, kids on the show was struggling and he would just kind of, you know, pull him aside. He's like, look, here, here's, you know, give him, you know, pep talk or do whatever he needed to do. And they would get there. And he, he just, he was that character. And he, you know, just, I, I remember the pilot where he pulls up in the big flashy car and everything else. And, you know, it's just, you know. He, he was a special guy and a, and a great role on the Goldbergs and it's going to leave a, you know, his, his passing will leave a tremendous hole on that comedy. And the series did pay, pay tribute to him this week with a title card at the end of the episode, lots of cast members speaking out about both actors here, but yeah, it's, it's a big loss for, you know, both, both Jessica Walter and George Siegel leave big holes to fill. And you can, you can really fill in the gaps on both of their, you know, career entire journeys uh if you just by going to amazon for george siegel you can find california split fantastic robert altman movie fun with dick and jane uh the owl and the pussycats stanley kramer's ship of fools uh, just he he had this great film career and then he had this great tv career and jessica walter the the same you know and and the fact that they were so connected as actors apparently is, is just you know adds adds to the poignancy um yeah we we just wanted to make sure that we properly honored these two figures who are so very important in the medium we cover well said my friend well said well no way to transition well out of that so up next number two it's been a big week for ip oh leslie it's always a big week for ip <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, changing gears a little bit here, you know, it, this is kind of like a, a glorified headline segment. But when you really think about it, you know, I'm just going to run through some of the stuff that happened this week. You know, so we, we mentioned in headlines that CBS greenlit a third FBI show from Dick Wolf. This one, FBI International. Lifetime picked up a third Harry and Meghan movie. Disney Plus is making a Latinx 
Wolf-led National Treasure series. The CW and HBO Max picked up a spinoff from the What We Do in the Shadows movie, which is technically a foreign import. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, everything here is, is based on IP. And, you know, a lot of people will say, like, oh, look at this, another spinoff or another offshoot, another reboot. Well, you know, and, and they'll, they'll blame broadcast networks and say, oh, the broadcast networks are out of ideas. They're not. They're just smart like, because they say we have this franchise. It can grow. It's a worldwide hit. We can sell it in international markets. It does whatever it does on streaming and it's profitable. You know, they're not, you know, in this, you know, most of the broadcast networks are not in this to, to win awards because obviously I think what there was, you know, the Jane Levy was the only like Golden Globe nominee on the TV front from the broadcast networks. And I mean, when was the last time we talked about broadcast and Emmys and it wasn't like, this is us, you know, so, uh, you know, look, it's, you know, we talk about this so much on the show, but it's an over-reliance on IP is for a reason because it's good business, it revives library, and it's profitable, you know? I mean, that's the same as good business, but yeah. So, you know, and, and keep in mind, you know, CBS owns half of the FBI franchise. So even if they put up half and they, and they only get half the profits, that's still pretty good considering, you know, and it gives them another franchise you know, FB, uh, NCIS, the flagship NCIS is still technically on the bubble. Mark Harmon, we're unsure if he's going to return for another season. You know, that deal is still being negotiated and they're still, you know, from everything that I've been hearing. And yeah, I mean, it, it's the same reason that the Grey's Anatomy renewal stuff is, is, is continuing. That Ellen Pompeo wants more money. But on the flip side, Mark Harmon's getting, getting up there and he, everything that I keep hearing is he's ready to, 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 hang, him, uh, to hang him up. But he doesn't want to let the cast and crew down because he heard that if he leaves the show, then CBS is going to cancel the, the flagship. Keep in mind that they're going to make another NCIS, right? So, um, I mean, they're going to do another spinoff there. So uh, there's a lot going on, and, it, and it's smart for F, you know for CBS. They'll probably have an entire night of FBI stuff, and you know, pair them all, you know. And that's when you think about it, it's like, oh, well, you know, how much is too much? Well, there's like eight Marvel shows in the works, and there's like eight different Star Wars shows in the works. So it's Theoretically, it's the same thing. And when you think about it in a big picture, all roads lead to streaming anyway. So now you're just bulk bolstering whatever service these are going to. So if they wind up on Paramount Plus, great. Here's a bunch of more procedurals that are, that that's the bread and butter of your audience, Dan. And I like how, how different these different things are. Particularly, I like that apparently Harry and Meghan have now become IP. It's the right. Harry and Meg it's the Harry and Meghan cinematic universe on, on Lifetime, which is a very funny thing. Well, look, biopics, you know, are big business. You know, everyone's life rights are selling. There's now two Mike Dyson shows in the works, one that's authorized and one that's not. People want known quantities, whether it's a procedural that that is mildly successful that that launched in the past five years, or life rights of someone like like Mike Tyson, or you're reviving National Treasure, which is a, a big a big franchise, and that can lead to other IP and spinoffs. It's funny because I am not actually a particularly big fan of the National Treasure movies. I, I think they're pretty weak and kind of carried by Nick Cage's particular brand of lunacy. On the other hand, I think the idea of a National Treasure TV series is a wholly reasonable and actually probably rather good idea. So I'm I'm down for that. Yeah, and uh, I've probably watched those movies more than I care to admit because my wife is a very big fan of those. I, I think the first I think the first movie is decent. I think the second movie is is kind of off the rails in terms of horribly written and other stuff. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I think the I think the what we do in the shadows uh, spinoff is kind of amusing because of how confusing it is, because it is a spinoff of what we do in the shadows, the movie, which explains how it ends up being on the CW and HBO Max, as opposed to it being a spinoff of what we do in the shadows, the TV show. But it means that there's this whole universe of vaguely connected things that uh, that will probably never connect because the what we do in the shadows TV show is owned and produced by Disney and on a Disney platform. And this is Warner Media saying, well, we want a piece of that for ourselves. So we're going to do it off. We're going to do it this way. Exactly. So, so, so it's a unconnected, connected cinematic and television universe, which is all a little amusing because it all reflects to how confusing the landscape is at this point. So for people to be like, how am I supposed to find this spinoff of whatever? 
But yes, it's this is the thing that we talk about every week, and, and it wouldn't be an episode of this podcast if we didn't discuss, A, some sort of intellectual property being adapted for the small screen in ways that don't always make sense, B, some network attempting to franchise something that makes more sense on a corporate or international sales level, and C, confusion between different streaming services, studios, and broadcast networks, and how it makes sense to anybody. <laughs> yep. That's all I got. <laughs> Excellent. Let's move on to the next thing. Up third. Number three. There's a slight strategy change underway at Netflix. This week, the streamer announced a modified release schedule for unscripted series Too Hot to Handle and The Circle. The Circle will, will launch April 14th with four episodes with an additional batch of episodes on April 21st and 28th, followed by the season finale on May 5th. That is a similar release to its first season, which dropped in three weekly batches of four episodes each. Season two will add a fourth week just for the finale. And then you've got Too Hot to Handle, which will unfold over several weeks in June with a premiere date and a release pattern waiting to be seen. Um, you know, it's worth noting too that this is not the first time that Netflix has done this on the unscripted side. They previously aired the 10 episode singing competition Rhythm and Flow over a three week event a few years ago. So yeah, uh, there's a lot to talk about there. And then the other piece that, you know, I'm slowly, you know, I, you know, my, my colleague Rick Porter and I update THR's premier, master premiere dates list all the time. And, you know, one thing that you start noticing is, if you look closely, Netflix premiere dates, they've started scheduling stuff for outside of their traditional Fridays. You've got some stuff on on Wednesdays like Last Chance You and Operation Varsity Blues. Scripted comedy Family Reunion is going to launch on a Monday, while the Jamie Foxx comedy Dad Stop Embarrassing Me is bowing on a Wednesday. So a lot of things are are changing here. Yeah, I, I think the pe- that, you know, people who are constantly updating uh, release calendars and whatnot, or pay obsessive attention to the newly added section on Netflix, have been noticing this for a while. And I think you probably need some sort of degree in something to kind of figure out what Netflix is trying to tell us based on when certain things premiere. So they've definitely had... I think that the Kevin James multicam might have premiered on a Monday, and they've definitely had random stuff premiere on Mondays. Let's say kind of broad comedies that don't necessarily always fit the Netflix brand, except that Country Comfort premiered on a Friday last week. So that would also have seemed like a Monday release. Then they've had some of their documentary series premiere on Tuesday and Wednesday. But then they also sometimes have documentary series that premiere on Friday. Uh, they've had a number of kind of off-brand genre things premiere on Thursdays. Those are always confusing to me. So, yeah, uh, Netflix has definitely they're not just in the Friday drop business anymore, but trying to make complete and total sense of when things actually premiere is really something that requires a higher pay grade than I possess, I think. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I thought about when I was putting this segment together last night was what if Netflix is going to wind up coming out with a premiere date schedule the way that the broadcast networks do, right? If they're training their users and saying, okay, to your point, Dan, well, we're going to have multicams on Monday nights and docu-series on Tuesday nights and high-profile scripted originals on Thursday and Friday nights, you know, with some, you know, movies in, in the middle, you know, or different or things are done by different budgets, you know, so... I have no idea if that's what's happening, but, you know, it, it would be hella interesting if it was. But I think the larger point here that we wanted to talk about, too, and, and we got a great mailbag question from this recently from friend of the five, Alan Seppenwall, who wrote, might the apparent success of The Mandalorian, WandaVision, and The, and the Boys Season 2, at, at least as far as we can tell, possibly mean Netflix could consider at some point airing their week, their episodes weekly for high-profile scripted shows. So... Will they shift to a weekly release strategy for high-profile scripted shows, Dan? And I think when you're seeing the exp- the experimentation on the unscripted side, you know, the, the Netflix exec who was quoted in the segment or who was quoted in the press release basically said the same thing. We want audiences to have time to digest these episodes and these twists and these turns and these unscripted shows and talk about them. And that's always been the knock on Netflix is once these, these shows launch, then they have a very short lifespan. 
because it's all at once. And then if it hits, then congratulations, you get, you've hit the zeitgeist and you're good for maybe a couple of weeks. But if you don't, then it's literally turning the page to the next thing. And, and, and I think that's where we go to Alan's question. And, and I think the first thing to say is it behooves Netflix to try as many different things as they possibly can. And, and it would not in any way surprise me if they fiddled around. And, you know, I think there, there are so many different ways to skin the proverbial cat when it comes to premiering things. You know, something that was completely and totally accidental and caused by COVID and all of that was the two-part first season of uh, Lupin, of Lupin. And to me, that's actually a fairly viable model, especially given the number of shows over the next year that are likely to have strange and unplanned production delays because there's simply no way. But that's also not new, right? You've you've seen basic cable networks, you know, remember, you know, season 1B of this and season, you know, like they did that with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And that's usually when they when you do a season and it's like 10 episodes for part one and 10 episodes for part two, it's because they're trying to save money. And instead of calling them seasons, you get parts. But other cable networks have kind of done that where you're like, oh, you're going to get the first half of this episode, you know, half of this season here. And then the returns later, like AMC does that with Walking Dead and pretty much everything. Well, uh, but, but I mean, it's different. It's different with the cable networks and with Walking Dead, because that's still a weekly thing with a pause. And that's given us that's given birth to the annoyance of the midseason finale, midseason premiere, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this is sort of setting things up as two different binge blocks, which, as you say, is what they did with Sabrina. And I think it's uh, I think it's a thing that is worth consideration because a lot of shows, you know, I said it in my review of I May Destroy You, for example, on HBO, that it's a show that to my mind was not designed to be watched in half hour installments on a weekly basis. That's how they were airing it. But to my mind, that was a show that would have benefited from what being watched in a couple binges, you know, first three episodes, next three, next three, however it was. And I think some shows are just like that. And I think that that kind of gives people the chance to have a couple more conversational windows. It gives Buzz the chance to build over a couple months. You know, we'll never know what the ratings are, but it's a pretty safe guarantee that the second half of the Lupin season, when it premieres, will premiere to a much larger audience than the first half when it premiered. So you're building an audience. Now, the thing about Alan's question that gets under my skin and annoys me is the cherry picking of it. Um, You know, it is one thing to do a weekly rollout for a show like The Mandalorian, WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where all three of those are massive brands that are blockbuster brands. And something like The Boys, Amazon could not have done a weekly rollout for that show in its first season. But having seen what the audience was for it in the first season, they knew they could do it in the second season. I think the lesson here, more than anything, is if you have a show that people actually want to watch, people will watch it however you make them watch it. If Netflix were to put on Stranger Things on a weekly basis, people would watch it on a weekly basis. They probably would grumble about it for a while, but they'd watch it on a weekly basis. Which fans of The Boys did in season two. Exactly. But on the other hand, if you had put WandaVision and nine episodes of WandaVision up on that first Friday, fans would have watched it by Saturday morning. That is just how people would have watched it. However they were given it, people would have watched it. So it becomes one of those things where what have we proven by saying that if you have a show that people want to watch – They'll watch it however you give it to them. I'm not sure anything. I could, for every one of those four shows that have rolled out on a weekly basis that actually have built buzz and have elongated conversations, I could give you a half dozen HBO Max, Apple TV Plus, et cetera, shows where they've tried to do them on a weekly basis and there's been no building buzz whatsoever for them. So it's... It's not a thing where it's inherently better one way or the other. It's just a there's no reason not to try it. And so from a perspective of an older TV critic like Alan Sepinwall and also myself, where we've where we've where we've trained ourselves to write about things on a weekly basis to our mind, it feels more natural and it feels like the conversation is building more on a weekly basis from 
the perspective of the companies that are putting these things out, they're putting the things out based on how their business plan works. It's nothing else. It, you know, it's not like Disney Plus said, oh, we're, we want to air these things weekly because it's what's best for the storytelling in the audience. Kevin Feige might say that, but if you're Disney Plus, if you put WandaVision out in one week and you put uh, Falcon the Winter Soldier out in the next week, that's what? half of your programming for the first half of the year that you've put out in two weeks, you want to keep people on your service. You want to remind right. people yeah. your service exists. So airing yeah. them weekly is beneficial for the service. Yeah. And it's an effort to reduce churn. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. It, would Bridgerton have caught on the way that it did, you know, at, with a Christmas launch, had it not been something that was so bingeable that people consumed all in, you know, in, in within the span of a couple of days, would it have been as successful if it aired over 10 weeks? I don't know. You tell me. We we don't know, but but uh, but I can just as much point to a show like Bridgerton or a show like uh, Queen's Gambit as examples of shows where they came out all at once, and yet somehow the binge the 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 binge model didn't keep them from generating word of mouth. It didn't keep people from talking about those shows for weeks and weeks and months. People legitimately organically found those shows. You, you sort of look at something like Ted Lasso as actually the perfect in-between point, where without any question, people were talking more about Ted Lasso after 10 consecutive weeks than they were talking about it when it premiered. There's no question. Obviously, that helped. But the number of people who have discovered that show subsequently and have binged that show subsequently is probably vastly larger than the number of people who were watching it in week 10. I, I have to assume, because again, we, we don't, as we might have mentioned once or twice, these streamers do not provide ratings. So that's a show that both probably benefited from weekly, but it's hard to know if that really made that much of a difference or if there would have been the exact same effect as people discovered it gradually because the word of mouth subsequently has been so strong and the people who watched it after it was all available, they didn't watch it every week. They they watched it all in one rush. And so I I, I simply don't think that there's a a real correlation that you can draw between these four shows with a massive built-in audience worked in a weekly format and therefore Everything will. On the other hand, some things would. So, so it's sort of it's it's a both. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got some of these other companies, you know, some of these other streamers who are doing, you know, here's three episodes of this. Like, look at how HBO Max is unspooling Generation. It's the same thing. You know, a lot of these, you know, like when when streamers announce premiere dates, my first question because it's never mentioned is, is this all at once or what's the rollout pattern? And you know, like like Peacock announced Rutherford Falls was going to premiere. I was like, hey, what's the rollout? And they're like, it's all at once. I'm like, which is is that that's different from them because usually it was like week by week on some of this other stuff. So yeah, it's, you know, I think it's whatever they want to catch buzz, whatever they need at that moment when the earnings are, you know what I mean? I think it's all, it all plays, plays a factor. And uh, I'll leave you with this, this to ponder Amazon and Lord of the Rings binge or weekly. It is a, it is a good question. And that is another one where if they decide to do it weekly, it's because they know there's an audience that will watch it weekly, not because Anything. And they also know that the audience would binge it. Ultimately, none of these decisions come down to what's better for the audience. Right. None of them. None of this has anything to do with what is most convenient for you as a consumer. You should always remember that regardless of anything else we say. It unfortunately is not about you. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation doing what's best for it. Yes, that's right. Well, up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Malcolm Spellman, who recently made his documentary producing debut with FX's Hip Hop Uncovered. He previously served as writer-producer on Fox's Empire and as a consulting producer on Apple TV Plus's Truth Be Told, which was created by his wife and former TV's top five guest, Michelle Tramble Spellman. He's currently the head writer on Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Marvel's second Disney Plus series after WandaVision. We should note here that this interview was recorded after we had seen one episode. So while it does contain spoilers for one episode, it only contains spoilers for the premiere. Welcome to the podcast, Malcolm. Good, glad to be here, man. 
So let's go back to the beginning. When you came into Marvel to pitch back in 2018, how many of the pieces were already kind of set in stone that you had to work around? And when did you know what your angle was going to be for this project? It It's funny the way. So what Marvel does is they create a few templates, right? And as jumping off points and they create a menu of people that you can pull from. Cause remember there's a ton happening in the Marvel universe. You know what I'm saying? You can't, you can't just go in there and say, Oh, I want Wanda and vision to be in this. And then you find it, you know what I'm saying? So they, they had what I, what I love that they do is it, it's, I, and I feel like this is part of the secret sauce of Marvel. This is going to sound so simple is they do know kind of what genre and what energy they want each of their movies or projects to be. And that simple mandate. So for this one, there was, they knew they wanted a buddy two-hander, you know what I'm saying? Like on the spectrum. And, and that allows all their projects to firmly be rooted in, in an energy that's different. So they did, they did have a template and they did have a menu of characters and there was stuff I showed up wanting to do, you know what I'm saying? Like, especially with the Sam character, and dealing with present day world climate that, you know, I knew was going to be pointing and they was, they, they, they roll. We, we, we vibe very, very nicely. Uh, you know, so from a storyline point, how much did you have to change because of Marvel's delayed movie calendar? Obviously black widow has been bumped around the schedule and hasn't, <laughs> has not debuted on streaming. It, it's, it's it, the, for us, COVID worked out great. Um, we were already like this, this project has had a real poignant from the beginning. Like there were things, there were choices we made early on that we ended up not doing and thank God, because they were so close to what's happening in reality. And so when we got shut down because of COVID, we already knew we were dealing with the, the primary thing in the Marvel universe at the time of this project is what happens after the snap or the blip or whatever you want to call it. And we were, we had already brought that to life in a way that was feeling relevant. But once COVID hit, we were able to shift that and really look at it and saying, man, there's something very unifying as awful as COVID has been that the entire planet is dealing with the same problem. You know what I'm saying? And we were able to drill down that on more. So that was the primary, the primary shift that happened was sharpening something we was already going to do. And I think it worked out good for us. Well, I want to go back to the idea of a menu and what Marvel sort of gave you and what you were able to choose from, because they're not in the first episode, but it was announced that Agent 13 and Zemo are part of this series. Were those characters you knew you wanted? And how about when it comes to having John Walker as the contrast or adversary to Sam? Um, it is... I promise you, I'm not BSing you when I say you do not know what John Walker is going to be exactly because he shifted from the books a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Um, um, obviously, it's not a love affair, but there are a lot of antagonists in this project. It's hard to describe the menu because that sounds so rigid. And I think people think Marvel definitely stays involved creatively with their projects. Right. And that's not a bad thing. Look at what they've created. It's when I say menu. That's the jumping off point, right? And then you start riffing. You work directly with an exec, right? From the Marvel Universe. I got to work with Nate uh, Moore and Zoe, who, who basically are your Sherpas through this world. So that if you want to go off menu, we don't know, like, this is how I describe working at the Marvel Universe. Imagine you're Spider-Man and you're on top of the Empire State Building looking down in New York and the Iron Man goes flying by, right? You don't know what Iron Man's off doing, but you know something's happening in the Marvel Universe. That's how it is writing for them, right? So you're not allowed to talk to anybody about what's going on, but you had these Sherpas with you who work at the company who are like, if you say, for instance, since you guys know John Walker's in it, let's say John Walker hadn't been on that menu, but your story's going to a place where John Walker would be awesome. It's not like you got to just stay on the menu. You can pull other characters from the MCU as long as they know it's not going to disrupt what's going on. Right. Cause it's all e extremely interconnected. So, you know, I, I, I want to go back. I like the bigger picture questions here. So, you know, as someone who's not like the, the, you know, I'm not fluent. I don't have a PhD in Marvel and, you know, the mythology and, and off, 
often admittedly get overwhelmed by too much mythology. But for me, coming in kind of as, you know, the non-Marvel person, WandaVision felt like a perfect debut show for Disney Plus in that it was a four-quadrant show that appealed to all different ages, the, like the, the sweet spot in TV, as you know. So for you coming in, you know, this this opens with a big 10-minute, big-budget, classic Marvel fight scene. Did What kind of restrictions did you have when it came to characters you could use and how much violence you could show? It, Considering it's, it's like a tone, it's a, it, like a, it feels like a very... Uh, by design, tonal shift. It, it, yeah, I mean, our our bullseye, so when you think of Buddy Two-Handers, right, you have on the spectrum of tone, you have at the darkest, edgiest tones, Defiant Ones is sort of like one of the original ones, um, um, 48 Hours, which people remember as being much more comedic as it is, than it is, and as that tone starts to arc towards comedy, you know what I'm saying? At the furthest end, that's totally comedic. You have Ride Along and Rush Hour, right? Well, somewhere in the middle, you have the first lethal weapon, which we felt like was our bullseye for tone, where it's still fun, but you know, you're dealing, the characters are allowed to be very, very human um, and very, very real. And that was something everyone agreed on before a word was written. Um, the scope of the show, I gotta say, Kevin said this cannot be TV from the beginning. And the people who did these set pieces are the people who work in the MCU. They don't do nothing else. And man, that scene you're talking about, I, when you first see it, you can't believe you was involved with it. You know what I'm saying? I just said this in the uh, interview, my buddy Craig Mazin, who's a, a writer and producer, after he saw that trailer, was like, did you guys just kill television? You know what I'm saying? So that part was an experience for me that I'm having along the way, like, you're, it's one thing to have a creative discussion and to write a set piece, but you don't realize who you're dealing with until they start sending your work back uh, fully visualized. Um, and again, they're not rigid. I mean, if you look at the difference between WandaVision and uh, uh, Falcon Winter Soldier, that those came from the same people should give you a sense of how fluid they can be on what characters we use. You know what I'm saying? What characters we pulled from. Um, so I, I don't know if that answered your question, but it is, I, you know, they don't say, here's your menu, stick to it. They say, here's your menu. Let's all get together and start creating from that and see how it shifts. Right. But, uh, and just, and in terms of the tonal shift, you know, WandaVision starts, it's just, obviously everyone's seen WandaVision. You've seen it. So, yep. you know, you see the way that, that Wanda starts versus the way that you guys do with this huge action scene. So was that kind of a tonal, like a by design tonal shift? Is that kind of your, your way of saying, okay, you've just come from this very nuanced exploration of grief that was a slow burn to build up into the hardcore marvel of it all at the end. And now we're going to lead with that and then get, you know, like, can you talk about that shift? And, and if so, that was by design, yeah. So I'll, I'll break it down like this. Because of how they designed the creative pods, I'm not thinking about WandaVision or Moon Knight or any other projects because I literally, when I see the people that had a second floor in the Marvel building, y'all go there to eat in the kitchen area. Man, you can't even talk to them about what you're doing, right? Um, so our tone is a tone that is, everything we do is created purely with the integrity of doing the best we can in this thing. That said, Kevin who you guys all know what he is. He's sort of like, he he's the Marvel puppet master. I, I have no doubt that as crazy as that dude's schedule must be, he's for sure kind of tracking how these different projects are going to have a different pulse out in the world. But we create solely in our own bubble. So I want to talk a bit about the arc for Sam in particular here, because he's not a reluctant hero, but he's definitely a reluctant symbol. How well do you think he understands, as the series begins, what makes him uncomfortable about taking up the shield? It, it, it's, it's Sam is dealing with the reluctance on two levels. He's dealing with it because of sort of his backstory and where he comes from, and and he's dealing with it because he is a black man and and he knows. And I think, you know, if the hashtag Killmonger was right uh, uh, means anything to you guys, the the spirit of that lives in this show, because 
you know, Marvel wants to make sure you respect all the fans when you're creating, but they also know their fans have been willing to go on every ride they've presented. You know what I'm saying? Cause they, cause they know they're not, you're not going to show up with an agenda or whatever. So Sam is very, very aware of who he is in this world, the color of his skin and what that symbol means. And I think you already know from having seen the first episode, people think this decision is obvious. People think this show picks up right after Endgame. And, you know, when Steve hands uh, Sam the shield and we're off and running, but they, they didn't pay attention to what Sam said when uh, Steve handed him that shield. How does it feel? It feels like it belongs to someone else. And that journey is alive and active in Sam from the moment our show begins. And as the show progresses, his personal backstory, which fuels, fuels it even more, you know, makes him even more ambivalent about it um, in a way I think that's honest. There's a lot here that's kind of reconsidering the idea of what America is, what America's symbols mean to people, and the people to whom it doesn't necessarily apply. And I'm curious if that's an easier topic to broach in a in a genre world, or if you still have to explain it to executives what you're getting at with that. I, I think you you have to first tell a great story and you have to first put these characters on journeys that are rooted in the mythology that Marvel's already created and going to send them in a trajectory that's going to be fruitful to Marvel and exciting and fun and very, very human as far as where those characters are going, right? The, the truth of who these characters are, I don't think it needed to be explained to nobody because the world is the world. Don't, you know what I'm saying? Like it just, it, it just, it, it, it not, nah, you don't have to explain it to nobody because everybody knows what's happening on planet earth and in America. And you literally would burn yourself if you tried to be deceptive or fake or hide from obvious truth. You know what I'm saying? With black characters, you're going to get burned by it. You know what I'm saying? So you just let the honesty be the honesty um, without ruining none of the fun, without burdening people with, you know, speaking from a pulpit and 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 let it play out. Um, and, you know, uh, so no, we didn't have to explain nothing. I think I think, you know, listen, we had a, my exec, my Sherpa, one of my executives is one of the seniors. Uh, Marvel execs, Nate Moore is a black man. You know what I'm saying? Our writer's room was 90% black. And they they knew what they signed up for when they brought us in, you know? But I'm sort of curious just on how genre works in allowing people to embrace bigger topics than maybe they would otherwise. Like, because I'm curious if the, if you were trying to go with some of the same themes back when, when you and your wife were trying to do Confederate at HBO and that didn't go forward. If this is sort of, if you've been looking for ways to bring these themes out and maybe this is the right way to do it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on this. There is a promise from certain genres and from certain brands. Right. And when you sign up for Marvel, they have yet, whether it's Black Panther or an Avengers movie. Right. They have yet to deliver anything that was not respectful to the fans as far as we want y'all to be entertained. Right. And at the same time, if you look at Black Panther and that hashtag, right, they have trusted their fans to be able to accept certain conversations Right. And so I, I think what you're hinting at is very, very true. This definitely allowed us to have a conversation where the delivery system is going to allow people to feel comfortable, hopefully hearing it, as opposed to something that's, you know, that which will not be named. <laughs> so in a larger sense, you know, WandaVision was very clear from the start that it was an exploration of grief. Uh, what are some of the larger themes that you are looking to explore here? I mean, you de you know, it definitely felt like there was some stuff about veterans and the way that they're treated in this country, et cetera. Number one was identity. If you think of all the characters in this, that the governing rule was every single character from Sharon to John Walker, Sam, Bucky, even Zemo, right? Every one of them, their identity and how they perceive themselves shifts by the end of the series. You know what I'm saying? And through that lens, through John Walker and Bucky, you're going to be dealing with war and, 
and and the toll that uh, uh, fighting for this country has on veterans. Right. Through Sharon, you're going to be dealing with what it's like. I don't want to say too much, but, you know, she is definitely all grown up by the time this bad boy ends. Right. Uh, uh, And through Sam, obviously, you have a black man looking at the stars and stripes. You know what I'm saying? And you know what happens in the first episode. The audience doesn't. But it ain't what they think. You know what I'm saying? So the first biggest theme of this was identity and taking each character on an uh, uh, on a journey that allowed the, their identity and who they see themselves and who they identify with to be shifted by the end. The other thing we wanted to explore, I don't know whether you really would call it a theme or not, was this phenomenon of the pandemic and how closely it went. The snap, the blip, Thanos basically making three billion people or whatever, however half the population did appear and disappear, disappear put everybody in a position where there was a universal struggle. Our antagonists, who also are dealing with identity, uh, are born, are reacting to that universal struggle as our characters. So the identity and sort of the state of the world right now were the two biggest things we wanted to explore. Was it easy to see how Bucky, as a 106-year-old white guy with a history of fighting for the wrong side in conflicts, how he fit into the themes that you wanted to get at with Sam and with the other characters? Yeah, and look at Bucky's journey, meaning we we knew it was going to be rich in that Sebastian is able to carry, I, I'm just, I, I, it's hackish to quote it, but it was a good quote. He knows how to carry that grief on his on his sleeve in moments of silence. And now we got a chance to unpack it. And we wanted to unpack it in two ways for him. Number one, this dude has had his brain messed with um, a bunch of times, right? And done a bunch of foul stuff, but he remembers it all, which makes him believe I was there a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Meaning a part of me was there as the Winter Soldier. So what does that mean as to get into identity who I am, right? And part of his journey in attacking all that and going on the uh, uh, ride he's on is him coming to the conclusion of who he can be in this world as far as just being a decent person. And then by the end of this thing, some version of he will, in my opinion, right? I don't want Kevin or Sebastian get mad at me. Uh, uh, Bucky is only going to get to become a hero after this. He finally is clearing his plate enough that he can go become a hero. Um, The other thing with him is, like you just mentioned, his age. He's got to deal with the fact he ain't got no family. You know what I'm saying? He is not he's never been present in an era long enough to be of those times. So where does he belong just as a person is 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 is, is, it's all part of what uh, what he's going through. And, And sticking a little with the with the micro I I thought the scene with the bank manager was fascinating because I'm not sure if there's been another point with the MCU where they've acknowledged the economic realities of being an Avenger. And I found myself thinking of unpaid internships and of college athletes being exploited, etc. How important was it for you to define the ability to be a superhero as a position of privilege? It's funny because it's weird how y'all key in on stuff. That moment and that bank scene is one of those great moments where you never know what Kevin or Nate or Zoe or Lou or any of those guys from the greater collective of Marvel are going to harp on. Right. So I believe when that first came up, it wasn't, we hadn't even put that much thought into it. And then this conversation triggers around you. Right. And everything you're asking about turns into an elaborate conversation of the, a, the logic of it, and what it means and you have to absorb all that and try and distill it into a moment that's not cumbersome or whatever right and uh it's just a trip that you keyed in on it so yeah we we like what it means to be a superhero like how you're viewed the fact that the way they survive same way with you know, i'm not gonna I'll be careful about that that there there is a ton of good graces from the community because of who they are that I, I can't believe you keyed in on that. Um, that was a giant conversation that ended up in that moment. 
But is there someone in Marvel, I assume Kevin being the answer for all questions, who's able to tell you exactly who is getting what money for doing this? Because obviously, you know, in the in the world of superheroes, Marvel and DC, we know we have the billionaires who can do this because they're billionaires. But who's getting grants from the government to be a superhero and who's just, you know, who's living off inheritance? It, it's, it's weird. So that, listen, you saw it. I mean, everything you're saying is right in there. The assumption became, I don't think they'd ever thought about it to the to the detail of that moment but yeah you know as long as tony stark's on you know walking the planet right anyone in his vortex is obviously going to be fine right and sam's association with the military what that meant as far as you making money whatever we we just hadn't thought about it so it was just a matter of taking what's already been set up in the mcu and getting it going into a conversation and yes of course you you keyed in on like a fine detail, which is, well, of course, these dudes would be able to get a free pizza if they're broke or whatever, because, you know, what I'm saying like, look what they've done. Some of them actually literally disappeared for uh, five years. <laughs> it's the it's the they never have to buy another beer in this town again kind of. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, looking at the big picture of, of the show once again, you know, it's you've got six episodes. Kevin Feige said, you know, in a, in a press conference at TCA a few weeks ago that there's a reason it's six episodes because these are expensive endeavors. They're basically you're making a mini movie every week, et cetera, especially when you see that 10 minute action sequence that kicks yeah. off the show. So how many episodes did you initially envision this show being and what impact did the six episode cap have on that storytelling? I proudly will say we were supposed to be first up. Right. And uh we, that was a creative discussion. Like Kevin doesn't do that. He doesn't say you're doing this. He invites you and the rest of the creative team into a room. As you start to unpack the stories, we were as a collective, we landed on six episodes because yes, there are limitations. A $1 billion uh, uh, TV series is not doable. Right. Uh, so maybe you can't go on forever. Right. But a huge part of why we landed on six was it was the best way to tell the story. Like literally whether or not there would be a seventh or eighth episode, mostly. So Kevin, obviously, and I'm talking money. I'm only talking creative. And we felt the flab. You were like, it was going to get flabby. We need, here, let me give you all this. The goal here was to, you know, there's two kinds of storytelling, right? For a movie, I call it vertical storytelling. It's almost always compressed time. There's almost urgency to everything. And there's usually one event in the, each character's journey and one event you're writing toward, right? When you're doing a limited series, you need to capture that urgency, but you're doing horizontal, horizontal writing. The relationships are going to play out very, very differently. Kevin's mandate was y'all got to create a mini movie every week, not just as far as how much resources we're going to throw at it, but the vibe of it, it has to feel eventish and urgent, right? And so in the storytelling, it has to feel like a movie. Yet we want the deep dive of a series and six episodes, just the way to tell this story, six episodes was born from that. So I know our time is coming up to an end here, but I want to ask in a larger question. So, you know, WandaVision, the finale, when it came on Disney Plus, it clearly said series finale. And Kevin has said some of these uh, Disney Plus shows are going to be one off. Some of them are renewable. So, you know, WandaVision obviously feeds into into the, the second Doctor Strange movie. So from your vantage point, do you have where do you fit in the puzzle? Is this a renewable show? And is there an ending point that you needed to lead into in terms of the larger MCU, the way that the way that WandaVision did. I will say this. I promise this is not an oversell. Sharon Carter, Baron Zemo, Bucky and Sam are not the same people they were at the beginning of this project. And they have all been positioned to exist out in the MCU now as new sort of entities how they exist way beyond my pay grade but is that a piece of information you were given or a piece of information that you were able to lead to yourself like were you told we need these characters emotionally to be in this place they don't do that not nah, they they won't do that they're, they're like I, I can't describe to you how closely they work with you they're right there with you they're having the same experiences you're having in the moment 
So they didn't give you like an endpoint that says, you know, this needs to make sure that you connect to or sets up the stage for X, Y, Z, or you can do another season. They're not no, all the connectivity from every project. I'm not talking about mine specifically. All that connectivity is happening in the moment by a collective that is they're forming in their head. They do not give you any mandates like that. The only mandate is this individual project has to be awesome. So, yeah, will there be a second season? <laughs> so that's an arm, arms okay. up on video, on Zoom. I was say, for our, our, listeners. our listeners cannot see your arms <laughs> raised in questioning. Um, whatever Kevin says is going to happen is going to happen. <laughs> is that comfortable for you as a storyteller? Sort of, sort of knowing that you have to be in in that position, or do you just accept it, it, it that that's it, that's how this works? It, it doesn't feel like you get conditioned along the way. I'd never worked on nothing like this. I never worked on something that had this kind of scope. And by the time I land in front of you guys, I've I'll give you a short anecdote before I hang up. I took a, I had 300, 400 followers on Instagram. I took a picture of my chair back that they gave me on the first day of shooting and posted it. And within four minutes had probably two or 3000 followers and my phone's ringing uh, saying, Hey dude, your picture is now in three media outlets. You know what I'm saying? And you just announced production of the series. And we like to do that. And I put my, sh my, my thing on private and had a new respect for what this universe does. So it's not uncomfortable now, but it was back then. Now I just be like, man, if Kevin ain't said it, you know, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say anything about. <laughs> well, we do like to close all of our interviews the same fashion. What have you been watching and enjoying? Um, I'm loving, I'm, you know what? I must confess something. I was forced to watch Bridgerton and I'm loving it, man. I'm not going to lie. I, 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 I did not see it coming. You know what I'm saying? I'm all in. Um, I'm watching a documentary series we probably shouldn't talk about. I'm watching my own documentary series, Hip Hop Uncovered, which I am extremely proud of. But I, yeah, if I got to give y'all anything interesting, if y'all knew me better, it's crazy that I love Bridgerton this much. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Malcolm. We appreciate it. Uh, you guys are great. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Malcolm. I appreciate the time. And maybe at some point we'll have you and, and, and your wife on, on the show and talk about what could have been with Confederate. That might be an yep, interesting yep, interview. Yep, happily. Yep. All right, you guys. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier is streaming weekly on Disney+. Plus. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's new launches, Dan, The Mighty Ducks, Game Changers on Disney+, Plus, Amazon's Invincible, Netflix's The, the Irregulars, City on a Hill returns to Showtime. Supergirl begins its final flight on the CW. Chuck Lorre's latest for CBS, United States of Al, makes its debut. It's a lot. You got a lot to choose from this week, Dan. It really is. And I'm not sure that there's a clear number one best pick thing that everyone's going to need to watch. But there are a lot of interesting things. I've already had several people uh, take exception uh, with me on Twitter for my my controversial contention that the original Mighty Ducks movie is OK. <laughs> Apparently, there are a lot of people who take that as a uh, as a stone cold classic. I assure you, though, it's OK. I mean, you know, it's it's a disney version of Bad News Bears. That's fine. Bad News Bears, much better movie. Neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> Are you talking about the original so, Bad News Bears, though, not the remake? I'm yes, I am definitely talking about the original Bad News Bears and not the Richard Linklater remake with Billy Bob Thornton. Because um, we would have words otherwise, my friend. No, no, I was not. I was barely acknowledging that that movie existed, though I definitely did see that movie. So it existed. Um, as for Mighty Ducks Game Changers, guess what? It's it's okay. And I think that probably a lot of people's ability to just hop on board with it is going to depend on, do you think that the original Mighty Ducks movie is some sacrosanct masterpiece, in which case probably you will you will find this a little bit less good than that. But if you go into it thinking it's a cute little underdog sports thing with plucky kids and uh, and occasionally Emilio Estevez uh, being sarcastic, then I, I think this probably fulfills that. One thing I have to say, and I rewatched Mighty Ducks last week just to refresh my memory and was struck, incidentally, by how much I remembered of that movie, which is OK. Uh, the movie is so efficient. It gets to its point 
almost instantly. The premise is set up immediately. And also, a lot of the complications involving the Gordon Bombay character are out of the way almost immediately, and it really just becomes goofy kids learning to play hockey. Uh, this is a little bit less efficient because if you're elongating a story out to 10 episodes, that's just what's going to happen. And so that is my largest complaint is it feels like it's spinning its wheels a lot. Uh, but this is something that may actually be better in a binge than in a weekly mode like Disney is airing it because some episodes, very little is going to happen. I've seen only three, but I can tell you only a little happens in a couple of them. I don't know if I would really care at 30 minute doses. So, okay, so that's one thing. Also coming out on Friday is Amazon's Invincible, based on the comic by Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman. And it's kind of an in-between show to me. It's sort of halfway between being a lovingly evocative uh, take on 80s and 90s cartoon superheroes, and then halfway between being a sarcastic parody, satire, whatever of those. And all the things it does, I have to say, HBO Max's Harley Quinn does better. So Harley Quinn is both a very cutting, sarcastic, hilarious show, but also if you just watch it for weekly superhero adventures, the action's fantastic. And, and the gore is terrific. And it's just really balls out and it's fun. And then it's also hilarious and sarcastic and parodic. So... That does what this does perfectly. This does what it does decently. I laughed sometimes at it. I thought that some of the animation was appealingly retro. I thought some of the gore was funny and silly. The The cast is unreal. Uh, the, the cast is just great. Uh, Stephen Young is the main character, but then you also have Sandra Oh. You have J.K. Simmons. You have Jason Manzoukas. You have Gillian Jacobs. It's, it's one fantastic voice after another, and the voices are all assets. The voices are all doing the things they do well. You have, you have Clancy Brown. It, just so many great voices, not just being stunt-casted, but actually being effective and, and funny. So... Like, do I think this is as good as Harley Quinn or The Boys, since it's on Amazon? No. But it's got enough going for it that I that I dug it. Um, continuing along with Friday premieres, The Irregulars on Netflix, which is slightly odd. Netflix put a day of premiere embargo on reviews. So you might have noticed no reviews up until Friday. And usually that means one of two things. It, it means either it's horrible or there are really shocking surprises that Amazon is pretending that critics might spoil because, you know, we, after all, we do that all the time. Uh, so much spoiling of twists. And uh, it's neither of those two things. It's not horrible. It's occasionally entertaining as a upside-down take on the, the Sherlock Holmes franchise. It's it's basically Sherlock Holmes meets Stranger Things is, is what it is because it's Sherlock Holmes and Watson, but really focused on the ragamuffin Victorian kids who are – who are really helping them solve the crimes. But meanwhile, there's something about to open up a, a hole in the universe and there's supernatural stuff. So that's what it is. It, it's really kind of bloated. It's not wildly successful at any of the things that's trying to do, but it's, it's entertaining enough. And I don't think I could really spoil it for you if I tried. So holding off on reviews doesn't really help. And it just keeps people from being able to tell people this thing that they're not advertising as a Sherlock Holmes show is kind of a Sherlock Holmes show. And what else do we have coming? Well, you, you, everyone heard all the, the buzz last week when Twitter suddenly noticed the United States of Al exists. Uh, that, that was a, that was a thing that was ugly. And that was a thing that was entirely, uh, caused. It was a, it was a unforced error that CBS brought upon itself with really, really bad trailers airing during the NCAA tournament. So not only did people discover that United States of Al existed, but people were offended by United States of Al at exactly the same moment. Um, it's, it's a Chuck Lorre show, and it's a Chuck Lorre show of the recent Chuck Lorre lineage. Since Mom, basically, Chuck Lorre has decided to do shows that start off extremely broad, and then he backtracks into almost, not quite soap opera, but almost dramedy format, where whole episodes go by where really there are no broad punchlines. And a show like Mom does it wonderfully. 
a show like Be Positive does it decently. A show like Bob Hart's Abishola does it decently. So the thing about United States of Al that you have to know is that if you are offended and disgusted by the trailers you've seen, the trailer is reflective of the tone of the premiere. And it is reflective of the tone of the premiere. I, I'm not going to try telling you it isn't. So if you want to be offended by it, by all means, there are reasons to be offended by it. But if you watch subsequent episodes, they become more serious. They become less hacky in their comedy. And you can see that it's not a badly intentioned show. It's just a show that put its worst foot forward and... That, for some reason, is the Chuck Lorre style at this point. And so I don't think the show, if people make it to episodes three and four, would actually be offensive to most people. I think most people would look at it and say, this is a show that's trying to do interesting things with this story of an Afghan translator who moves in with his uh, former Marine buddy in the United States and culture clashes ensue. I don't think you would find it offensive. I think you'd actually see that the show is trying to do a bit of cultural understanding and, and bridging of cultures. And also, as anyone who has watched Bob Hart's Abishola knows, you know that Chuck Lorre's thesis, and he said it on our podcast too, is immigrants make America great. He is he is pro the immigrant experience and the immigrant experience as it benefits America, as it benefits people to be exposed to different cultures. It is a positive representational show that leads with a really hacky pilot. And that's just that's just what it is. If anyone wants to watch the pilot of this, get offended and never watch again, I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong. If anyone is really curious about the show, probably tuning in an episode two or three is a more fair thing to do. But why did the show have to lead with a hacky pilot? I have no answer to that question. It does get better as it goes along. It does get more sensitive as it goes along. It does do more dramatic things that sometimes are interesting as it goes along. But the pilot is broad and hacky, and that's just what it is. So anyway, those are, those are a few of the things you should look forward to in the next week. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by special guests Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, last week we put out a bat signal for mailbag questions and got a lot of great questions, which, as you can see, stretch from last week into this week and maybe next week. Who knows? But if you got more questions, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>